Last week on The Business of Bees. Should saving honeybees be a priority for conservationists? It's like saying I'm concerned about the birds disappearing, so I've decided to keep chickens. You know, honeybees are not at risk of extinction. They are critically important for agriculture, but these are bees that are not going to disappear. While many credit the honeybee for raising awareness about the plight of pollinators, some say more focus now needs to go towards saving wild and native bees. We tend to think of them as this one kind of thing, but they're a diverse group of animals. From Washington, D.C., you're listening to The Business of Bees, a podcast from Bloomberg Environment exploring the increasingly complex relationship that exists between humans and bees. I'm Adam Allington. And I'm David Schultz. So let's begin today's story the way any good sci-fi thriller would begin, with the introduction of a blood-sucking, home-invading parasite. Once it has penetrated the beehive, the varroa mite multiplies in the brood cells where the queen has laid her eggs. They use their mouthparts to suck a blood-like fluid from the bee larvae and then lay their eggs in the brood cell. Oh, oh, God, what was that? Was that a clip from Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Uh, good guess. It was actually a video produced by Bayer in 2017. And the body snatchers in this case are actually these tiny parasitic mites from Asia, aptly named Varroa destructor, which the company regards as the single greatest threat to honeybee health today. By the time the bee hatches, it is weakened, often infected with viruses, and has a shortened lifespan. The varroa mite can also be carried by the bee into other beehives. So for years, pesticides were thought to be the cause behind mysterious mass bee die-offs known as colony collapse disorder. But in recent years, new research suggests that varroa mites might be impacting bee health much more than previously thought. Samuel Ramsey is an entomologist at the USDA Bee Research Laboratory. You may actually recall him from episode two. But two years ago, Ramsey was still finishing his PhD thesis at the University of Maryland. Here he is explaining the parasitic relationship between varroa mites and honeybees in a video for the university's three-minute thesis competition. Take your hand and put it on your face. Now imagine your hand is a parasite, a lot like a tick, but instead of sucking out your blood, it's liquefying one of your internal organs and sucking part of that out of your body. If you were a honeybee, you wouldn't have to imagine. So did he win the thesis competition? Yeah, he did in fact. And Ramsey's work overturned decades of previous science that had assumed varroa mites fed on hemolymph, basically the insect equivalent of blood. I mean, I would say that's a solid assumption. Isn't that normally what mites and ticks do? Indeed, but what Ramsey discovered is that instead of feeding on hemolymph, Varroa was actually feeding on internal fat body tissue, which functioned kind of like the bee's liver. It detoxifies pesticides, regulates hormone levels, it produces the honeybee's primary immune response to microbial invaders. Back in his lab, Ramsey shows me several frames of honeycomb taken from a heating incubator. What you'll typically see is that the mites are riding around topside on the bee. There's a mite right there. Yeah, so you see that red bump right there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So these aren't happy bees, by any means, but they are. They have donated the, their lives to science. So what's wrong with these bees? Among other health problems, many of these bees have deformed wing virus, a disease that causes their wings to grow small or deformed, rendering them unable to fly. 
And I guess there's some specific connection between varroa mites and deformed wing virus? There is. And even though the virus has been found in colonies not infested with varroa, Ramsey says it's more common and more destructive in the colonies where the mites are established. And that's just the beginning. By varroa feeding on bees, we know that it negatively impacts the bees' ability to detoxify pesticides. And in so doing, the Amounts of the pesticide the bees can be exposed to in the lab that come off as sublethal are lethal frequently in the wild. So, in other words, exposure to varroa mites weaken the bees, making them more likely to get sick when exposed to other chemicals in their environment. They were first detected on U.S. soil in 1987. The mites spread quickly, infesting upwards of 50 percent of American hives. By far, varroa mite is the biggest issue that beekeepers deal with. Dan Wines is with the Bee Informed Partnership, a nonprofit organization working with commercial beekeepers to develop best practices for controlling and managing varroa mites. The more we look into it, we find more and more viruses that are associated. They're kind of vectored by varroa mites, and we don't have any way to directly treat viruses. While there are some commercially available treatments for varroa, Dan says their effectiveness in the field is pretty variable. Some are synthetic chemicals, some are more of a fumigant, others are more of a contact base, maybe something um, like impregnated in like a plastic strip or something that you place in the hive. When the bee walks over, contacts this chemical, it gets exposed and that kills the mite. So I think we should just point out here, it's got to be so difficult to apply chemicals to kill one bug that lives on another bug without killing the first bug. I mean, that has to be so hard on the bees. It is. And on top of that, several recent studies now suggest that Varroa may also be developing resistance to the chemicals that are supposed to kill them. So you could ask yourself, well, 40% are dying every year would be down to zero pretty quickly. But a lot of the skill and effort in beekeeping is splitting colonies to replace them. Splitting colonies is the process of removing bees from one hive and putting them into a smaller hive called a nucleus or nuke. The beekeeper then implants a new queen who starts laying new eggs. In recent years, the only way beekeepers have been able to keep the honeybee population from cratering completely is by constantly splitting and nuking new hives. Jeff Lee is a commercial beekeeper from North Carolina. When I spoke with him last January, he said, generally speaking, he could maintain his hive numbers as long as the die-off rates didn't get much higher than 25%. In the last couple of years, it's been 50%. I mean, from the peak of the colonies that I have in the late summer to about this time, uh, it's about a 50% attrition rate. So you, you almost have to have twice as many colonies as you really want just to maintain your numbers. And while you don't read as many headlines as, say, a decade ago, Lee says he's still seeing the mysterious vanishing symptoms associated with colony collapse disorder. Essentially, you open the lid and there's nothing there, and you see combs filled with honey and pollen and even a, a little dead brood, but no bees. And so that's sort of the colony collapse type symptom that a lot of beekeepers have seen. This last year, I had the most losses I have ever had. And I'm reading the literature and I'm trying to do everything I can to keep the bees healthy. What happened, the the bees, they just kept getting smaller and smaller and there's nothing left in the colony. 
I couldn't explain it. The first cases of colony collapse started turning up around 2006. To this day, scientists acknowledge that the puzzle's never been entirely solved. Basically, the bees get frantic, almost like they can sense something's wrong. And then over the course of several days, they just disappear. It's what entomologists refer to as altruistic suicide. If a honeybee gets sick, it will crawl away or fly away from the colony. It's, a, it's, it's way, nature's way of protecting the colony. The problem is if most of the bees think they're sick, they leave the colony and the colony will die because it can't maintain the heat. Whoa, vanishing bees. It's like we're back in Stephen King's science fiction territory again. I mean, wasn't it kind of like an influenza that killed everyone in the stand? Yeah, I think you're onto something there, Schultz. Many people feel that the root cause of all these mass die-offs is virus-related, and varroa is the transmitter, kind of like a dirty needle. But Lee says some of the destruction currently being caused by varroa is also because the European honeybee is short on the genetic traits that helped other bee species resist parasites. And Samuel Ramsey's research has proven that is, in fact, the case. Varroa destructor has uh, developed such a close relationship that it cannot survive under any other circumstances. We don't find reproducing varroa outside of honeybee colonies, period. Over evolutionary time, Ramsey says the European honeybee seems to have lost many of the defenses against parasites present in wild bees. So when they were introduced into Asia, they were easy targets for varroa. But look, here's what I don't really understand. So even though honeybees are easy targets for varroa, wouldn't these mites ultimately be hurting themselves if they're killing the bees? I mean, it's like intro to parasites 101. You need the host to survive so you can continue to exploit it. That used to be the relationship of Varroa and the honeybees, where they maintained a balance, where they didn't cause damage in the colony. They fed on only the male bees, and nobody really cares about the males. They don't do anything. They don't do any real hive tasks. There may be some level of uh, helping to maintain the temperature of the colony, but aside from that, they contribute nothing. They just take resources. So the honeybees didn't really care very much about the presence of this organism in their colonies, as long as they didn't attack the females. But eventually, Varroa went after the females, too. Drones, workers, even queens. And if they ended up killing one hive, well, there's probably another one just next door. And so when they switched over to Apis mellifera, the European honeybee, they found an organism that they could exploit where they didn't have to continue striking this balance. One of the things that's allowed them to do that is the way that we tend honeybees. We put them all very close together. Over the course of just a few decades, which is a ridiculously short amount of time in evolutionary terms, Ramsey says Varroa had completely adapted its nutritional and reproductive biology to revolve entirely around honeybee colonies. And if it weren't for the intervention of humans, we'd probably lose all the commercial honeybee hives we have to Varroa. And the reason why we know this is because when Varroa Destructor arrived in the U.S. in 1987, just 10 years from its arrival, we had lost all of our wild colonies. All of the colonies that were not being tended by a beekeeper used to be able to go out, look in a tree, find uh, in a hollow of a tree an entire honeybee colony that's just cranking along without the input of human beings, no need for help from us. Wow, that's shocking. I mean, so you're saying there have been feral honeybees in North America for hundreds of years, basically since the pilgrims, and now there's no wild honeybees at all. None. 
And it makes sense when you think about it. I mean, every year we basically take every commercial beehive in the country, send them out to California to pollinate almonds, let them mingle and rub up against each other on all these flowers, and then move them on to other states and crops. I mean, you couldn't design a better system to spread parasites and disease. We've brought an organism over from another country and allowed it to establish itself. And we have also created a very unnatural set of circumstances by keeping these colonies so close together. Uh, it allows for the genes that would normally be weeded out in this parasite's biology to become the primary genes that you see in the population for this mite. Over in Southeast Asia, the genes that allow for these mites to effectively kill every colony that they go into, those would be weeded out very quickly because those mites would then die because they can't spread to another colony. Here we have rewarded that, and so we have created a segment of evolution that is pushing them towards being the most virulent parasites possible. So we've been talking about the impact of varroa mites on honeybees for a while now, and we've clearly laid out the many reasons why we should be concerned about varroa. But when you're talking about bee health today, the amount of blame we should lay at the tiny little feet of varroa mites is also somewhat controversial. Really? How so? Well, I mean, in terms of assigning a cause for bee die-offs, many environmental groups would point to a large body of research suggesting that insect and pollinator die-offs correspond directly with the increased use of pesticides and chemicals in agriculture. Ah, and as we'll discuss in next week's episode, the pesticide companies are more than happy to point the finger at Varroa. So where does that leave us? Well, varroa mites do transmit viruses, that is a fact. They also feed on the bees' larvae, which weakens them and makes them more susceptible to developmental deformities. Earlier this year, I went to visit a researcher who's been studying this relationship between varroa mites and the spread of diseases for years. Each one of these, these bottles, contains about 100 bees. And this is a, obviously a, a cold storage area. Is this running all the time? Yeah, this is a big walk-in fridge, basically. This is the lab of Dennis Van Engelsdorp. He's a professor of entomology at the University of Maryland, and he's considered by many to be the principal expert on the subject of colony collapse. And what he's showing you here is, what, lots of dead bees? So you can see this is just tubes and tubes of stored frozen bees. This is frozen solid down to negative 80 Celsius. And these these are, are bees with viruses? Well, we don't know. But, I mean, that's how we test them. So we bring them here, then we test them for viruses, but then we also save them in case, for instance, like we've discovered new viruses. So one virus we hadn't even heard of in 2010. Last year we heard of it, so we went back to samples that were from 2010. We found it only in two states. Three years later, it was in every state we had samples for. In his cooler, Van Engelsdorp has thousands and thousands of samples and data that he's constantly updating, trying to further unpack the relationship between the spread of varroa and diseases. What's really important, though, part about this varroa story is it's not just varroa, it's the viruses that they transmit. And what we've seen, I think, is that these viruses have changed an awful lot. And as time goes on, he says the weight of evidence pointing to varroa as the leading cause of declines in bee health has outstripped everything else, including pesticides and colony collapse. 30 years ago or 20 years ago, if we went to a colony and it had less than 20 mites per 100, we'd say, okay, that's the threshold. You don't want it to get any higher than that. Two years ago, we were saying it was three mites. Now we're saying in the spring, it's one mite. If you're up above one mite per 100, we can predict you're going to have much higher losses. Over time, Van Engelsdorp says honeybee colonies have become more impacted by viruses. 
but researchers still aren't sure if it's the result of the mites spreading the diseases farther and wider, or perhaps that the viruses themselves are mutating and becoming more deadly. This year, there's some troubling signs. We don't know exactly what's going on, but there's other things going on that seem maybe to be viral-related as well. I want to emphasize we still don't know what caused colony collapse disorder. We think that that virus is what caused the symptom, but we're not convinced that it was the what caused the viruses to escalate. We still don't really understand. Oof, that's not good. I mean, just to put a fine point on it, there's not a lot of options to control the spread of mites, or medicines, in fact, that will tamp down these viruses. We have this problem where the treatments aren't working very well for the mites, and the mites are carrying much more virulent viruses. And so this is compounding that issue. And as far as these high die-off rates are concerned, Van Engelsdorp says that's an open question. Are we going to continue to see 30, 40, 50 percent of bees die every year? Is that the new normal? Whether that's historically true or just the current reality, we don't have data for. I, I suspect, and I think most beekeepers would agree, that this is a new phenomenon. There is something changed, and there is something different about keeping bees now than even 10 years ago. Despite the increased demand for pollination, the overall number of beehives in the U.S. is way down from historical numbers. The USDA estimates that there's somewhere around 2.6 million commercial beehives today, down from 6 million during the 1950s. And while the certainty of those historic numbers is up for debate, some people point out that we might also be bumping up against another more concrete limitation on our ability to raise increasing numbers of honeybees. It's becoming kind of crowded in a lot of areas, uh, just like if you were to overcrowd your cattle pasture with too many head per acre. Gene Brandy is a commercial beekeeper from Los Banos, California, and past president of the American Beekeeping Federation. Gene says just finding enough suitable space to raise a 1,000 or so new hives is really hard, let alone the 200,000 new hives the almond industry requires each year to keep pace with growth. It's a double-edged sword, if you will, and, and I've said for many years now, that the increase in demand for bees to pollinate almonds in California is the best thing and the worst thing that's ever happened to California beekeeping. Given that a bee can travel upwards of three to four miles to find food, Brandy says it's becoming harder to find a place to park your bees where they're safe from pesticides or diseases that might spread from the beekeeper down the road, to say nothing of the flowers and pollen they need to eat. There's a limited amount of forage in the USA. Certainly, I keep my bees in California year-round. There's a limited amount of forage in California, especially in the drought years. Dennis Van Engelsdorp says more and more beekeepers are heading to states like the Dakotas or Montana, but even those states only have so many acres available for new bees. So there's just nowhere for commercial beekeepers to go anymore, and that's a problem. And I think it highlights that we really need to preserve the American meadow. We need to preserve the American prairies. You know, we just laid out some really scary and depressing news for bees. It's hard out there for a bee. But the silver lining, or at least the thing where we could say, well, it could be worse, so far varroa mites haven't turned up in populations of native bees, like your bumblebees, mason bees, or sweat bees. And uh, thank God, because things are bad enough. But. No, no, no no buts. No buts. (laughs) Samuel Ramsey has one more point to add to our discussion. Oh, wait, let me say a thing. Let me say a thing. There, uh, there is another parasite, however, that is related to Varroa destructor, the tropolelaps mite, uh, that is threatening bees in Southeast Asia and other parts of the world now. 
it's possible that it will end up in the U.S. And that is the least species-specific mite parasite of bees that we have seen so far. We have found them in colonies, uh, even in colonies of xylocopa, which are carpenter bees. What's so crazy about this is that carpenter bees are solitary species. And we would expect that a creature that has evolutionarily refined itself to working with a social insect would not be able to just jump over to uh, a solitary species like carpenter bees. So the fact that we even see something like that occurring should concern us enough to know that if the tropolelapse mite uh, was to find its way uh, into the U.S., it could easily threaten native populations of bees as well. Great. Fantastic. So you're telling me that even if we do develop a treatment that works for Varroa, we could have tropolelaps to look forward to next. I mean, in so many words, yes. And that could impact native bees, too. Well, on that note, what will we be talking about on the sixth and final episode of the Business of Bees podcast? This is the episode where we finally talk about perhaps the most controversial topic in the world of pollinators. Ooh, let me guess. It's bees and pesticides. Bingo. Well, nothing like saving the most controversial issues for last. One teaspoon of a neonicotinoid is enough to deliver a lethal dose to one and a quarter billion honeybees. And we're applying thousands of kilos of this stuff to the landscape all the time. Coming up next week, we're going to hear from scientists, pesticide companies, more farmers and beekeepers. We're going to dig into lots and lots of research and data and context. And hopefully we'll arrive at a point where we can at least understand the environmental challenges and what's being done to address them. All right. Well, the Business of Bees podcast was produced by myself, Marissa Horn, and Adam Allington. Our editors were Josh Block, Greg Henderson, Jessica Coombs, and Melissa Robinson. We had fact-checking help from Mahogany Savoy Lyles and Colleen Murphy. Music on this episode is courtesy of a Creative Commons license from Pottington Bear. If you like what you heard on this podcast so far, or even if you don't like it, please leave us a rating and review. The more people who do that, the greater the chances that new listeners will discover the show. So thank you, and we'll be back with you next week. Hello again. Just one last quick word here. If you're interested in the Supreme Court, Bloomberg Law has a podcast called Cases and Controversies. Here's a word from their host. Cases and Controversies is all about the Supreme Court. One of the oh, come on. Words. You know, come on. Well, I agree Be with serious. you. We sit down with leading practitioners and scholars to break down these cases. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up so I didn't have to. But, uh... <laughs> oh, I interesting, know that. Right? That is See? interesting. I guess my imagination is running wild. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Tune in every week for our deep dive and sneak peek episodes wherever you get your podcasts. As always, check out the latest at news.bloomberglaw.com. Ha, 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 ha.